you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Yeah. So good. Such a great Bible reading, such a great series, and such a great privilege to be with you. My name's Dave. I'm the youth pastor here, and get to launch in to the series we're tackling over the next few weeks. It'll take us all the way up to Christmas, The Seven Signs of Jesus. Uh, The stuff we're looking at today is in John chapter 2, and it is, in my humble opinion, borderline unbelievable. So if you have a Bible, it's a great thing to have it open. We'll jump around a little bit, but I want you to check that I'm not making this stuff up because it's pretty amazing. So as you turn to John chapter 2, I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Uh, God, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you take things and you turn them into other things, and we pray that you would do that now. Take my words, would you make them your words, and would you take our lives and make them pleasing and honoring to you? We pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus and all of God's people said together, amen. I want to start with a quote from the great Augustine. He says this, John's gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. I love that. And I reckon he's right. Here is a gospel you could read with a child, right? Just crack it open and read it with a young one and, and you'll see some amazing things, but then keep reading it and read it some more and read it some more and keep reading it until you're old enough to have great-grandchildren of your own because when you do, you will continue to be delighted and surprised by what you find here. 
which is why I'm so excited to be jumping into John's gospel over the next few weeks. And my aim today is to try and convince us Augustine was right. Here is a gospel deep enough for an elephant to swim in and shallow enough for a child not to drown. So, so my hope is to go through this passage in three simple steps. We're going to go through and just splash around on the surface a little, like a child would. And then we're going to try and get into the mind of the author and see what John was thinking. And then we're going to dive a little deeper, like, like an elephant, and see what's there for us. So three steps, the child, the author, the elephant. Sound good? Let's go. Point number one, the child. The scene opens at a wedding in Cana. Jesus is there. His mother is there. His disciples are there. And in those days, weddings were proper parties. They would go for days and days and days. The food and drink was freely flowing and the celebration was massive. So, so when you picture this scene, don't, don't think an afternoon tea. Just, just think much, much bigger. Okay? But then there's a problem at this week-long party. We see it in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, that might seem like a small issue to us and and kind of expected the bars run dry. What are we going to do? But in this culture, that's more than just a small problem. The way these weddings would work, you, you as the groom were expected to provide for all of your guests lavishly, and that was a very, very strong expectation, a, a binding social contract, so much so that if something like this happened, you were open to a lawsuit. You're in all sorts of trouble. So we think running out of wine, oh no, not great, but this is much more like having a wedding reception with no food or water for anybody for days. At the very least, it's really embarrassing. And Mary wants to do something about it. So she turns to Jesus. It's not super clear why. Maybe he's just a resourceful kind of son to this point. He hasn't done any miracles in John yet. Maybe she's just thinking back to the midwives who were also angels in his birth story and there's something to that. There's some expectation there. In any case, whatever drives her to do it, she turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, they're out of wine. And he says in verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, which, let's be honest, is not a translation that has aged well. (laughs) Uh, It does seem like he's been crazy rude to his mother, and I'm not quite sure that's true. This this rendering is a little bit unhelpful at the moment because... uh, the word he actually uses is pretty courteous. It's like ma'am or, or dear woman. So he's not being as savage as it might look, but the question he asks is still jarring. What does this have to do with me? Not my circus, not my monkeys. But his mother persists. She, she continues on in the idea that somehow he can help and tells the servants just, just do So the scene is set, and sure enough, something amazing happens. Look at verse 6. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now, draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. 
somewhere in here, we're not sure where, the transformation takes place. This, this water becomes wine. We don't know when, we don't know if Jesus said something or if he waved his hands. We just know that by the time it was tasted, it was wine. And the impact is powerful. Look at verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the groom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. Now this character, the master of the feast, uh, is not quite the father of the bride. He hasn't paid for anything. Or, he's more like the, the head butler of this situation. Some archaeologists dug up a picture of him recently. Here's what he looked like. And he tastes the wine and says, wow, what? He goes to the groom and says, this is like really good. What are you doing? I mean, people have been drinking for days. Just go to Aldi, spend $2.69, fix the problem entirely. But this is really nice. Like he's almost grumpy about it. Where was this stuff on day one? And that's the story. And then the narrator zooms out and tells us what we've just witnessed. In verse 11, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now we've only splashed about on the surface of this story, but already we've seen some pretty impressive things about Jesus. We've We've seen that he takes a role in providing. He gets involved in other people's problems and, and saves them from significant social embarrassment. He, he has the power to do some pretty special things. People see this man and, and they believe in him. This is a great story to bring people to, I reckon, because it, it does a number on our internal monologue about what Jesus is really like. Jesus is the kind of guy you would invite to a party. And he's the kind of guy who says yes. And then he brings the party with him. He makes it better. Like this is, this is good wine, which tells us this is not a stingy guy. Jesus is a great guy to have at a party. We'll read in later stories. He's also a great guy to go fishing with. But, but if you think in your head that whoever this is, he's out to make sure you have as little fun as possible, I'm not sure you've met him. Because only a cursory reading of this story shows us this is someone very, very powerful, but, but this is a good guy. He's good company. And there's so much here, just on the surface, right? And it's all good, it's all helpful, it's all true, but it is not all. There is so much more here. Look, look again at the final verse of this story. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Something really important to notice here. John does not call this a miracle. He calls it a sign, which is a little clue that maybe there's something going on here below the surface. It is miraculous, yes, 
But I'm not sure we should call it a miracle because it's so much more than that. This is a sign. The Greek word John uses here is simeon. And I don't know if you've checked your Greek dictionary lately, but I checked mine this week and found there's 13 possible uses for the word simeon. Not one of them has anything to do with a miracle. Now, this is much more about a signal, a symbol, a piece of evidence for something, a representation of something else. See, the whole idea of a sign is that it points to something beyond itself. A sign is not a miraculous act, but a significant act. Now, it might be miraculous as well. This one seems to be. There is something supernatural going on here, but this is more than a miracle. It's a sign. And we're supposed to ask, a sign of what? If this is a sign, that's fine, but what's it pointing to? Well, put your snorkels on, because we're going to dive a little bit deeper below the surface as we come to part two, the author. Now, in the Chiswell household, we've reached that stage of life where weekly swimming lessons are part of our routine. And uh, sometimes they're met with great enthusiasm, sometimes not so much, but every week we turn up, and we try and turn up early so we can have a little splash in the kids' pool first. And you know the kids' pool, it's the one with lots of fountains, and it's loud, and it's colourful, and it's, it's suspiciously warm when you first get in. And, uh, and if you've spent any time there, you'll know that there's two kinds of swimmers in the kids' pool. There's those who've embraced the goggles, and those who haven't. Now, the kids who haven't embraced the goggles still have a great time. They get wet and all that, but, but they swim with their chins above the water, and they're really trying hard not to get submerged. And, and even if they do get water in their eyes, they're all disoriented and have to rub it out. And even if they're brave and do go beneath the surface to see what's there, all they can see is kind of fuzzy and foggy. And then you've got those with the goggles. They can do all that stuff, but so much more. Because they can see clearly underwater, and, and so they can go diving for treasure. They can see how long they can hold their breath, or see how long they can hold their brother under the surface for. <laughs> I, I still remember when Edie, our eldest, went from one kind of kid to the other. She put the goggles on, she held her breath, she went under, and, and it was like she'd just seen a whole other world. We haven't been able to go to the pool ever since without making sure we've packed the goggles. And here's the link. At the end of John's gospel, John gives us goggles. He gives us a way of diving deeper and seeing clearly. When we put them on, suddenly we can start to see things we maybe couldn't see before. Maybe we could see some of them, but they were fuzzy. Here's where he does it. In John chapter 20, turn to John chapter 20 if you've got a Bible. John chapter 20, verse 30. John writes this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Underline that, circle that, 
highlight that if you want. I have a friend who doesn't use highlighters because she has commitment issues in her own words. But if you need a pencil to do that, whatever you need to do, that's a really significant passage in John's Gospel. Because he tells us why he's written what he's written. And even more than that, he tells us what he wants us to do with that. John hasn't just recounted Jesus' life. He has done that, but in doing so, he's deliberately and carefully curated a collection of things that Jesus did so that they might build a picture of who this is and how we should respond to him. That's what's going on here. You might think, the seven signs of Jesus, didn't he do a lot more? No. He did a lot more miracles, yeah. But there are seven signs in John's gospel specifically designed to point us to his identity and what we're supposed to do with it. And and it is clear. John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing to have life in his name, to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior King God's people were waiting for, who would come and do what nobody else before him was able to do. The Son of God, the Word made flesh, God dwelling amongst us. And as we see that, John wants us to believe and to find life Jesus says, not just life, but to have life and life to the full. Here's the thing. The signs in John are not here to show us what Jesus can do. They're here to show us who he is and what we should do about that. And when we understand that this is what's going on, this is why John's written what he's written and this is what he wants to show us, we can start to see beneath the surface of these stories in a new and clearer way. Let me show you as we get to our third point, the elephant. Remember Augustine's quote, this gospel is shallow enough for a child, and we've done that kind of reading, but we're going to dive deeper like an elephant would and see what we can see with our goggles on. As we do, I want to pick up one big theme In this story, there are others we could talk about, but I want to focus on one by noticing a couple of small details that we probably missed on the way through. The containers and the context. The containers and the context. Look at verse 6. As you see, the containers, these stone water jars. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, which seems like a small and slightly irrelevant detail. But it totally checks out if you're a first century reader. That's exactly what you'd expect at a wedding. Because in Mark's gospel, we read that the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. The Pharisees even ask Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? See, washing your hands before you eat, that's a great idea for sanitary reasons especially if you've been to a children's swimming pool in recent days. But that's not why they did it. They did it for ceremonial reasons. A wedding like this would provide you with jars like this 
for washing your hands before you eat. Because if you did not do that, you were defiled. Spiritually unclean, dirty, and unacceptable before God. And if that's you, you can't participate in worship. You're not welcome in the celebration. And it's this water in these jars that Jesus takes and turns into something else. There's something going on here. Something that sits below the surface. And and as we swim deeper in still, we start to see exactly what this is as we look at the context. See, the very next story after this one is also well-known kind of famous, and I think it's also one of the signs. Two for one today. What great value. Jesus cleanses the temple. He goes to the Jewish house of worship and ceremonial religion and sees it's not working the way it should. It's not doing what it should do. It's being abused. It's been turned into a shopping mall. And so Jesus gets angry. He starts flipping tables. Once he's finished, the Jews ask him a question in chapter 2, verse 18. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Here's what he's doing. He's taking their center of ceremonial worship and turning that into something else too. Where once there was a ceremonial washing at the start of a wedding, now there's only wine and feasting and partying. Where once there was a temple of sacrifice and rituals, now there's a broken body, risen again. Jesus is taking the entire religious system and turning it on its head. That's what John 2 is about. He's he's the new high priest. He's the new sacrifice given once for all time. He's now the way we might approach God, and he's the way to be made clean. That's what John 2 is about. It's about so much more than just a miracle of water becoming wine. This is about taking an old covenant, an old agreement, an old way of doing things between God and his people and making it new. And the story is here as a sign that this is the Christ. This is the promised Savior King who has come to do what nobody else before him could do, to be clean and to make others clean as well. What do we do with that? Believe in him. That's what John wants us to do, to believe in this Jesus. And all belief means is to trust him, to put our trust in him. And that sounds simple, and in so many ways it is. Even a child can do it. But I wonder if we fail to trust him 
a little more often than we'd like to admit. I suspect that all of us, from time to time, fail to trust Jesus when we add on our own ceremonial, ritualistic additions and fail to recognize that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we start to put this pressure on ourselves and each other to to pray just the right prayers in just the right way, using just the right words in order for God to accept us. To behave in just the right fashion so that you fit in with our subculture of Christianity. To to give just the right way or dress just the right way. To, To dot your I's and cross your T's. And once you've done that, then you can come. Just ask yourself, how often do you feel the niggling need to scrub up a little bit before you come to church? Maybe it's physically (laughs) to look a certain way or appear a certain way, or maybe it's morally, spiritually to feel like you've got your act together a little more than you do before you're welcomed through the doors. Let me ask you, if we had six jars of water out near the welcome desk so that you could wash your hands before you came in and raise them in worship, how confident would you be to just walk straight past them every week? If you're nervous about that, it, it might be there's a failure of trust there. Because here's the good news. We don't do water jars at this church because we just don't need them. We've been washed already by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we come as we are. That's what makes us welcome, not the way we pray, not the way we dress, not the way we appear physically, morally, spiritually. We don't have water jars here because we don't need them. And this is not a temple of ceremony where you come to scrub yourself clean. This is a wedding feast of celebration. That's what we're doing here. Jesus has invited us to just come and party. And that's why we gather on Sundays. Because if we believe in him, we're already washed. We've been made clean once and forever because he died on the cross for our sins. And he doesn't invite us into a world full of rituals and restrictions and religious red tape. He says, come, join the feast. Come and believe. And in believing, find life as it was meant to be lived. Life in the name of Jesus. And so if you are a Christian, just bask in the refreshing freedom of that. We're going to sing in a minute. Sing loud because you can. Because you're free. Because you have much to celebrate. And if you're not a Christian, or if you're not sure if you're a Christian, but you'd like to be, let this story be a sign for you. That here is someone who is powerful, 
but he's also a good guy. He's good company. And whatever you've done, whoever you are, whatever you think is on your hands, by trusting in Jesus, you too can be washed. You too can be welcomed into God's presence and into the party. If you believe in him, you can stop trying so hard to scrub yourself clean all the time. Friends, please do wash your hands for sanitary reasons. Please do not wash them for ceremonial ones. Because we can do so much better than that. Jesus has given us himself. So trust in him. Know that he has made you clean. And come join the party. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you take things and turn them into other things. We praise you that you have taken us and washed us. You have taken us and made us a new creation. You have taken that which is dead and made us alive again. You have taken the old covenant and made it new. We thank you that you have taken us sinners and made us family. We praise you for all of that. And we believe. Lord, help us with our unbelief. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Please stand, church. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.